0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio. Your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Season
1: 18, Episode 30. And it is our 2023 U18 World Junior Championship Review Show, powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide and Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level at Junior JuniorProspectHockeyLeague.com. So, Brad, when we last left off, we had not really discussed the quarterfinals, the semis, or the medal games. So, let's just openly discuss some things that we observed during those games, because that's really where, you know, the Met, like tires hit the road. And I think you have to weight those games much more heavily than what you saw in the preliminary games leading up to it. In that respect, just from a team standpoint, Oh, let's, let's look at it from an overall tournament standpoint. So I've been covering the U 18s for uh, decades. Um, and I've been to the event more times than I can I can count. And I don't recall seeing a weaker pool collectively amongst the different countries in terms of talent that I saw at this U18s. Now, obviously, two of the reasons why is Russia wasn't there and Belarus wasn't there. So there's I think Obviously, Russia is a top-end team, and Belarus is a really competitive team amongst the bottom four of that group that's generally there. So I think that was a factor. Um, I also thought, and I think you agree with me, that the Finnish team was a weaker collective group in terms of overall skill than I've ever seen. So I think that added to that as well. And I think parts of Canada's team wasn't as strong as it could have been And that's just simply because players are not available. CHL playoffs are going on and other players just didn't come because for various reasons. So I think if you collectively put all of that together, I look at this as a collective group and it's not as strong as tournament as the past thoughts on, you know, my observations of that.
2: Yeah. I couldn't agree more with you. I think, um, we're not the only ones who would think that I, I talked to some executives and scouts at U18s who, wholeheartedly agree with us that this was the weakest U-18s arguably ever. Um, it's just not the same without Russia. It's just that simple. Without Russia in the pool, it's just it's just like the U-20s. I mean, the U-20s was great this year, but without Russia, it's just not the same. Russia on paper was the best team going into that event, and now we'll never know, right, if, if, Russia, was, right. if Russia was there, what would have happened, right? Would Bedard have ended up doing what he did? Uh, so it's one of those situations where this UA teams, I mentioned this last time, but I'll mention it again, which is that from a scouting perspective, you can't weight this tournament very heavily this year relative to previous seasons. Um, the the big thing with this event is that this is really a two-headed monster. You had Sweden and the States versus everybody else. And, and that's all with all due respect to Canada. But we talked about this too. That Canadian team had very little chemistry. The structure wasn't there. The back end was uh, very green when it comes to international resumes, and um, bjornson really needed to show up on, uh, in terms of goaltending. He did. not
1: He had to be great, and
2: he had to be great, he, and he was not not remotely average, let alone yeah. great. So it, it's one of those situations where Ken uh, was really fighting an uphill battle just to remain relevant at this event, and it was you know pretty apparent that uh, that um, you know even before bjornson went down with his injury, he wasn't playing well you know, in when he was going up against Sweden there. So it's one of those situations where this event still had some relevance, but not as much as previous seasons, I guess, would be the way to put it.
1: Well, and also I think it, it, it becomes more glaring in pool B in pool B. So you have United States with Finland and Switzerland and Latvia and Norway. And in a normal year. So if Belarus and Russia were there, Latvia and Norway are are not there, most likely, or Germany. Yeah, no, no, they're one not one of the, but two Ger- of those...
2: the other thing, too, is Germany has has really started to develop much like Slovakia, right? You're starting yeah. to see a lot stronger teams. Last couple of years, you have really high end talent coming out of Germany, and that's a fantastic thing. Unfortunately, this was one of those down years. Yeah. So when you and bring them happens. into the tournament, like, it's just different, right? It's cyclical right. and it's going to happen. But I mean, it,
1: so. I thought the U.S. just feasted on Pool B, and mm-hmm. you know, you got a really skewed view if you you if you haven't been following these players or you don't follow the UA teams on a regular basis i think you got a really skewed view of like how strong team usa was so not only are they in a, t- a really weak pool they are the us national team added a couple like a you know a couple players of it, 95% of that's the U.S. national team. They play together all year. They added a couple players from the the younger team. But this is a group that should come in and be the favorite every year simply just based on their chemistry and the time together and their structure and the coaching staff. They should be the most dominant team. Then you put them in a – they're in a pool by no fault of their own, but they're in that pool where they can completely, utterly dominate teams. They can sleepwalk through half the games. And still win by five or six or seven goals. So I think that skewed this entire tournament leading up as you got into the semifinals. Cause even, you know, who did who did the states end up playing? That anybody that was significant until they got into really the quarters and semis, you know, I thought the Czechs gave them a, a run. Um, the Slovaks stood on his head, you know, stood Robble, on his head.
2: There, that's not that's not <laughs> it's not a close game by any stretch. I'm no, you no, know, and,
1: and I thought so, like the Slovaks did their best and then the dam, you know, broke open, it broke and, early and it, it broke, broke early, early, but it broke open, yeah. you know, and then they just it was an uphill battle and they weren't going to make it. And then it wasn't really to the Americans until they faced the Swedes that so is it really the gold
2: medal game was honestly it. The really. The only it,
1: game of real relevance. And it was so a
2: bronze medal game was good too, but yeah, the, the really the, the metal games were the only really relevant
1: games. Thankfully in turn, I mean, I think it's they were relevant in terms of evaluating players and waiting it specifically for the upcoming draft and taking notes for players for the 2024 draft that I a hundred percent agree with one of the advantages to, and I thought from like in the metal games, they were wildly entertaining. Like two of the best games I've seen like almost all year. They were incredibly, they were fantastic. fantastic To just, if you're sitting and just watching the game from a pure entertainment standpoint, it was fantastic. But what I thought was really intriguing about those two games, the bronze game and the gold medal game, is what I was looking for from a scouting perspective. It's which players were going to take their game to another level when it mattered. And you just take note of that from that standpoint. I that's what I thought the real value was in terms of this tournament is like okay which certain players are going to raise their game even in a loss even if their team lost they raised their game and they didn't falter. They did they just kept coming at the opposition. And a lot of it was judging it against that American team or against that Sweden team. Is how did you play against them? I was the, that was what I really ended up gauging both pools against. And then, as we got into the semis, into the you know quarterfinal, semifinals, and the gold and the medal games, was how'd you play against Sweden? How'd you play against the Americans?
0: Yeah,
2: well, one, one thing I was very impressed with was usually with bronze medal games, there's a there's a dip, right? The energy isn't there. Uh, Both teams are devastated. They never made it to the gold medal game. Uh, And what I found was that they actually played really hard from the drop of the puck. Like they really went after it, both Slovakia and Canada. There There was huge momentum swings in that game. That game had everything. Uh, I was really impressed with the fact that the players really were aggressive and really pushed their pace, despite it being a bronze medal game, because you don't see that all the time. I remember at the U-20s, the bronze medal game was not like that. It was it was totally different uh, atmosphere right. than that. So I, I was impressed by that. I thought that was one of the pleasant surprises, I guess, of a, honestly a weaker tournament that was... That left a lot to be desired, to be honest, from a scouting perspective. Um, but it, no, it was it was good. I, it, was, it was very interesting to monitor certain prospects like Jurek uh, Bukharczyk and and Dvorsky going up against Canada and if they would if they would continue to put their uh, their foot on the gas and really push their team on that top line. I felt they did. So uh, it was it was uh, it was really relevant for for Canada too. Some of those players, you know, like a ma- player like Matthew Wood, for instance. One of one of the big things about Matthew Wooden in terms of evaluating him, is is there enough of a competitive motor to compensate for the skating? Right, I felt like he was pretty competitive. He didn't yeah. didn't let up. He was pretty consistent. That bronze medal game, he, he still he was, he was I mean, he was extremely important in that bronze medal game, right? So, um, another player who is considered to be more of an autopilot mode type of player, not so dissimilar to how Shane Wright operates energetically, which would be, yeah. um, uh Callum Rich. Right? the way Richie operates. One problem with Richie is he's got the skating, he's got the toolkit, got the playmaking, looks, he's got the frame, he's got he's got everything you look for when you Except look like urgency. The but yeah, there's not a level of, another level to him in terms of dictating. There's not an urgency to him. He's a very efficient but streamlined thinker, and one one of those players that you know in that type of setting would he sit back? And the answer was no. He you know, he didn't he didn't up his pace, but he didn't decrease it either. And that that does matter. That's something right. that stands out. That's one of the
1: that's one of the things in that in that bronze medal game, which I think is really uh, intriguing, is Slovakia was really gunning for the medal, because they haven't medaled in two decades. And Canada, it was almost like don't want to be embarrassed. I we don't want to go home without a medal. We can't do that. Right? We didn't win, we didn't have a chance to win gold and get a silver or get a silver. Well, we can't walk away. We can't go back to Canada with nothing. And we can't have have this upstart team beat us in Slovakia, which almost happened anyway. So kudos to the Slovaks for that, 100%. So that part, from that standpoint, uh, I think that's what made that bronze medal game really, really fascinating is because there was two convergent ideas from that standpoint. Uh, we'll take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll continue to talk about the U18s right after these messages
3: every play every stat every breakdown on their own they're essential but altogether, they're undeniable introducing huddle instat a new advanced data platform that integrates with sports code and every huddle product you rely on to create an all-in-one data powerhouse huddle instats advanced tagging and next level stat reports help you develop your team and its global film library helps you find the missing piece to get the most out of every second of film visit huddle.com backslash hpr to learn more
5: You're
0: listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back, empowered by InStat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. This is our 2023 U18 World Junior Championship review. We're now happy to bring on Jason Buchla, uh, who is at the tournament as well, to talk about. So just Jason I want to get your overall thoughts of any players that jumped out to you in terms of, cause I know sometimes it's hard for us to not go into a tournament with expectations and you try to set those aside and just see what transpires. Was there anybody or players um, that jumped out to you, non goalies that, <laughs> ma- that made an impression um, from your standpoint and said, I'm going to go back and just watch this guy you know, maybe on tape again and just sort of like have some second or third looks.
6: Yeah. You know what? It's, it's, uh, it's one of those things uh, guys where, um, you know, you want to rely on the body of work for the whole season, but at the same time you want to see how these uh, these players can perform uh, at the biggest event for most of them at the end of the season and how they're prepared and how they can go to another level Hopefully. Um, so with that in mind, I mean, <clears throat> there was a couple of guys from, from Europe that are from European teams that really impressed me. Uh, you know, I thought that uh, Otto Stenberg, the captain in Sweden, was excellent the entire tournament. Um, he's a bulldog, shoots the puck a ton, um, you know, plays with pace, uh, good detail he really improved I, on my personal ranking. He's rising. He's a, he really improved his ranking with me. Um, I think that he's a player that can play in a variety of roles. And uh, the nice thing about him is that he very rarely, I can't recall a night that he took off for me the entire season. So he, he's like a no doubter in my mind. And, and I appreciate that from him. Um, but boy, can he shoot the puck too? Like he zips pucks from all over the place. Like, flank middle of the ice doesn't matter he gets a look at it he's he's ripping pucks so he was a guy I thought Dalbor Daborski really improved his stock last week his year has been a little bit up and down um lacked the type of consistency uh playing in Sweden that uh, I think all of us would agree we were kind of looking for that you know we were especially with the preseason ranking that he had and um he had a good world junior um did some some really positive things for me there um i think uh i think shane you and i might have been at a game or two uh in the same ranks uh you know maybe saw some of the same things you know he's got a really quick stick from the perimeter Uh, you can see that he's seeing the ice and making plays offensively there are some people in the fraternity that believe that his skating holds him back i don't have a huge problem with his mechanics i think that if he puts in the work he should be able to get another 10 to 15 percent out of that stride um and he's he's got some zig and zag to his game, similar to like Zach Benson does uh, playing in Winnipeg, um, where they're not you know prolific on straight lines, but they've got that deception moving east-west at times, and and that can open up some space. So um, that's a little bit of a mouthful, but two of those guys uh, they really stood out for me. Um, there was some other guys. Uh, I know Brad was there the whole time too. So. I'll defer to him for the next couple of guys because I could I could go on forever here with another 20 guys if you wanted me to, so I'll, I'll let Brad talk.
2: Uh, yeah, well, to, to your point, with Dvorsky's running mate, um, Yuresh Pekarczyk, I thought, put himself on the map here for... For people, if they hadn't seen him before, um, incredibly competitive 6'2", power forward, who's the youngest player in the draft. Uh, mechanically, skating-wise, I guess it would be a fall in the camp where That would be the weakness, but is he's, he's a much better skater at the same age. Um, yeah. But yeah, Karchik's skating needs to improve. Uh, one one uh, aspect to him, I, I talked to Jason with when we were at the event together, was the the uh, puck possession, ability to handle the puck without losing it and be efficient with it. What I found coming into the tournament that he was more efficient. And then I felt that there was an adaptation phase here where he's going up against the best quality competition he's faced. But by the end of the tournament, uh, I thought he was starting to get more comfortable with his puck handling, starting to hold the puck on uh, uh, in the tight areas at the right times, and actually managing to uh, to maintain possession longer than he was initially. So I felt like Pekarczyk certainly looks like a interesting depth piece um i thought he already did but i think that holds now out of the u18s though there is a ton of work to be done um in terms of player who i really felt solidified his draft stock i know jason's a big fan of him that's tom willander i thought willander had a very good event here um there the the big question mark with lander coming in was how he would look against some of these top teams like the states when he's under pressure um there's a lot to like with lander right he can really skate he can handle a puck and he can move a puck the The question mark is, can he get in sync with the forecheck and know when he should actually move a puck under pressure or when he should skate the puck? Uh, In Rogla, it's been mixed. For me, myself personally, it's been mixed. Internationally, it's also been a bit mixed. I was hoping to see a more clean, efficient play style there, and that's exactly what he brought to the table. Uh, He was very good against the program. I thought he was very good overall. Arguably the most consistent defenseman on Sweden, that's saying something when you have Pelika there and you have Lindstein. Um, so I, th- I really think Tom Lander did, did a lot of work.
1: See, I'm glad you brought up uh, Will Lander. Cause that was the guy I was going to jump to right away. But uh, you know, another guy that I thought, and you mentioned him, Brad was Lindstein. He was another defenseman. I wanted to really see what sort of like cap off his season for me in terms of, of that standpoint, you know, Brad, and I, you and I have talked about him quite a bit on the show and it was really about, I wanted to solidify my mind. What, what was he going to be at the NHL level? Because he's six foot, he's going to be about two hundred pounds. You know, and is he a high offensive guy? No. Is he going to be a, like a hardcore defensive defenseman? No. Like, what was his spe- what was his specialty going to be at the NHL level? And it's really, is he a jack of all trades? He's a guy that you put in the middle of your defense core of like that number four that kind of binds the top three with the bottom three, and he's that glue guy in the middle that a coach can put on the ice when things are a little bit more chaotic and you just need to calm things down, but give your top guys a rest thoughts on, on him as well, Jason.
6: Uh, when, you know, I was really impressed with him. I'll give you a comparable. Um, he is going to be for the team that drafts him the same as what Brock Faber is going to be for the Minnesota wild. So, Blue guy, yeah, yeah, he's going to be, uh, you know, he's going to, he's going to, you know, he's going to move pucks. He's going to potentially contribute a little bit of secondary offense, but, you have to watch this kid very, very closely to appreciate his brain and how he defends and how he's organized from the offensive zone all the way to his net. So against teams like the U.S., for example, when, when he's playing against their top line and they're you know cheating the neutral zone or they're jumping the rush with speed, um, he's really proficient at defending from the middle of the ice out. So he's he defends from the the middle hash to the to the boards. He's he's not a guy that gets outside the dots in the neutral zone and gives the middle of the ice away. And then if a guy tries to get to the edge, he's really agile and smooth enough to to keep him to the perimeter. So he's just a really smart, efficient two way defenseman. Um, teams clamor over each other to acquire these types of players and trade he's a he's a four he's a three or a four on a good team he's not a one or a two on a good team but he'll make a ton of dough and have a long career right in that role so even strength matchup guy kills penalties he won't be a power play guy in the nhl and it won't matter
2: yeah, I, I agree with Jason on that front. He's, for me, he's a very efficient puck mover. Who It's not the primary assist rates from the line that's going to get him his production. It's all about his A2s when he's getting stretch passes out efficiently, and then he's sending his team in transition. He's, the, the thing with um, Theo Lindstein relative to a lot of the other players in this tournament is he has mo- the most professional experience. He's played up with uh, uh, Breenas' system the enti- almost the entire season. So it's one of those situations where you expect him in a tournament like this, to, to dictate at times, be the most poised, the most mature player on the ice, the player that plays with the most structure, right? Some of these players are not very used to having to play with structure before. You see a brilliant talent like Selda Brini, for instance, on Canada. Like he's, he's just trying to take over games, and but he's only ever played in the USHL. He's never played in a league like the SHL, which is a very good pro league. So it, from that perspective, from a scouting perspective, kind of changes how you're trying to, to look at some of these players and, and what you're expecting to see from them. Uh, one player I will say... Put me in a question mark phase with him, which you never want to the end of the season. I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure him out, is Anton Wahlberg. Uh, Anton Wahlberg out of Malmo system. So for me, I I brought him up on the show before. There's a whole lot of Balat Shafi Gulen in him, meaning he plays a very Russian style individual game without using his teammates at the times he needs to. That said, he's... Built like a horse, he's 200 plus pounds. He's extremely competitive. He has a very intriguing toolkit when you look at his long-term projection. I thought at this event, he showed flashes, uh, and especially the Gold Medal game. I thought he was very good there, flashes of a player that if he can learn to play in the team-oriented structure and recognize when to use his teammates, then you might really get an interesting depth of power forward. Um, and I had no time for him before coming into this event, but I was told by one of my scouting colleagues that he had improved in the SHO when I had not seen him. I had seen him primarily in J20 when he's really just, the the decision-making was not at the level you needed to be. So for me, he's one player now that because of the U18s, I have to go back now. I have to go back to the SHL. I have to to go back to the drawing board and figure out what to do with him.
6: So he was, uh, he's a riser for me. I have to be honest about him. Um, You know, I, especially in the gold medal game, I thought that it was his most uh, quality performance of the season. It was well-rounded in a lot of categories, power around the, around the wall, um, sneaky off the rush one-on-one. He's a big body. He's long, right? But I mean, he, he can do some things with the puck off the rush that are, he, but he is perplexing. There are some shifts that you're going to look at him and you're going to wonder about his uh, his skating at times. And then other times he's going to have this, some pop to it. And you're going to say, Oh, you know, there's nothing to worry about. And, and then you know there are some other times like you just uh, said, Brad, where you, you, you he carried the puck a couple of times. He carried the puck off the rush. He got to his backhand side down the kind of um, the, a little bit on the perimeter, and there was some backdoor support, like some late support coming. But he didn't. He wasn't able to recognize the late support. He saw things on straight lines on the peri- like parallel to him, but he didn't really feel some some secondary support coming. So. There's some things there that uh, I think you've identified very well, but big body, I think he's a three in the NHL with better than secondary scoring upside. There's a lot to like for sure.
1: We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back with more analysis from the U18 World Championships right after this message.
3: Every play, every stat, every breakdown, on their own, they're essential, but altogether, they're undeniable
0: Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back and powered by Instat Hockey, often the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. This is our 2023 U18 World Junior Championship review with Brad Allen and Jason Bukala. We're going to chat about a couple more players right off the hop that you know we had discussed coming into this segment. Let's talk about Edward Shala intrigued because both Brad and I have talked about him. Um, In many cases, we think he's the little girl with the curl when he's good. He's very, very good. And when he's not, you're just like, what the hell is going on with this kid? But it's also, we have taken into consideration, you know, these kids are 17 years of age, 18 years of age. They're consistently inconsistent through every aspect of their life. So why should hockey be any different? And in, I hadn't, I didn't know why this kept popping in my head Um, But every time I watched Shala in this tournament, I thought of Daniel Sprong when he had played in the queue. And then when he played like in international, I'm just like, God, he reminds me of Daniel Sprong. So uh, I'll start with you, Jason. Thoughts on Shala's tournament and what you took away from his game in this, uh, you know, especially the games against the hard competition.
6: Yeah, when we start to talk about body of work on a player for the uh, entire season, starting in the Holenka to now. Um, he's a guy that I fall back on for body of work. Um, I have to be honest with you. I thought he was pretty pedestrian last week. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I, I thought he looked like he was out of gas uh, for much of the time that I watched him. So, um, you know, he's, uh, he he jumped at us at the Holinka with his offensive look and what he can do with a puck. And certainly, uh, you know, on the power play uh, at the world juniors, he morphed into, you know, he still played uh, you know, some some significant minutes and a significant role, but he also was more dialed in defensively. Like he had to really take care of things in, in all three zones here. He was kind of caught in the muddy middle for me. I have to be honest. He was one of the more, um, I don't want to say disappointed because you just, you just you explained it really well, Shane, like you have to be careful. Right. And, and his support, around him on that team compared to say the american team for example where he would have been sheltered and even if he was a little bit off he probably still would have produced more to his identity um he just uh he's a 2f on prode- on projection that played like a three and a half last week or he his range from a two he ranged from a two to a four last week with what i with what i saw it was it was kind of uh it was off
2: yeah, I agree with Jason. I the, there is a difference of opinion between me and Jason on this player, which which is interesting, just for you know uh, contrast sake. Um, I have not been as big a fan uh, throughout the season. I I have found his uh, Five Nations performance to be somewhat similar to the U18s performance here. Um, I am more worried about his ancillary skill set. I think would be one way to put it. I I don't I don't love how this player functions in transition. I do see the vision. I see the talent level. Uh, he's a smart player. Um, but that's, its you know, it's funny on radio segments, we don't have too much time to break that down, but intelligence can be mean, mean a lot of things. Like he sees the ice well, but in terms of some other characteristics I look for, I feel he falls short at times. Um, but at this event, the, the big thing for me was he had to be the backbone of that team offensively. He had to really carry this team. I think this tournament is a good representation for me of his season, suggesting he's more of a complementary piece. Um, that said, I also think that in terms of raw projection, I, I ta- talked about this with Jason, we were at the U18s together, and that's I think there's another level of physical development that this kid needs before we really know how he's going to operate. Because at times he looks like he could develop into a hybrid power forward, and when that when that player shows, then I'm interested then I'm interested when he's looking like a passenger and a complimentary uh, primary playmaker. That's when I'm less interested. And to me at this event specifically, that's how he, how he felt.
1: I want to ask you guys about Danny Nelson, because that was another player that both Brad and I had touched on specifically coming into our preview show and then into, you know, the part of more of the preliminary show, where the games happen there thoughts, Jason, on Danny Nelson and, and I think sometimes players like this, and I, and I kind of go back to Trent Frederick, where you kind of get overshadowed by these really like highly offensive players. And sometimes you, you kind of miss the value in the player, the other sort of secondary players at the program. And that is there's a benefit and a detriment to the program in that respect. Talk about Danny in that situation.
6: Well, first of all, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's only one puck, and that team is generally – well, not generally, they're just so talented every year, and it limits the role for a guy like a Danny Nelson. Having said that, um, you know, he ended the tournament with four and three, and he was a glue, guys, um, for that group, especially in the gold medal game. I mean, took all key defenses on pesos, started the scoring – Track through the yeah. slot for a tip goal. The The U.S. didn't look like they were um, poised to even come back in that game, to be honest with you. Like their top six guys were um, kind of stuck. They weren't really accomplishing much. And then you get a guy like Nelson who gets them on the board. The other things that he did were all the little things that make you win or uh, enable your – or give your team the best opportunity to win big games, you know, uh, blocking shots, uh, getting in the lane on the penalty kill. Um, And there was some some long stretches where he didn't roll over the boards just because of game scenarios. So um, he is uh, a prototypical 3F for me on on projection at the NHL level. Um, He's got size. He moves well. I think he's got some secondary scoring, but I don't think it's going to be really a huge element of his in the NHL. But the detail and the other things that he brings and the character, really good.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with Jason. I feel like, The gold medal game almost encompasses exactly what he has to be at the NHL level. He's just... He's going to shut down opposing teams. He's going to chip in offensively when his top guys aren't going. He's he's diligent. There's a ton of attention to detail. He's going to make big shot blocks if he needs to, win key draws. He's a big body, and uh, he's a, he's a complementary scorer that you don't have to worry about. And that's something I think from a public perspective we should maybe touch on a little bit is, does you know, you look at a player like Edward Shallow, we're talking about long-term projection. Yes, there's more upside. But you have to project further out in some instances of how he has to develop offensively, and you have to look at it from a perspective with Danny Nelson, you, won't, you know exactly what you're getting. Now I'm not suggesting you draft Chalet or Danny Nelson over Chalet. What I'm suggesting is Danny Nelson at this tournament showcased already to us as scouts exactly the way he needs to already play and that's not the case with some of these other players and that that does matter when it comes to rankings when it comes to projection um when you know jason's done this in real life as opposed to uh you know us just getting to talk about it or do fantasy and i'm sure one thing will jason will agree with me on is like it's way it's way nicer when you get to draft a player when you don't have to drip sweat in the middle of the night wondering if he's ever going to play And that Danny Nelson represents one of those players where Jason gets to sleep easy. And that really goes a long way. It's one of the reasons you see players like Trent Frederick draft a little bit higher than you would think based off of upside.
6: Yeah. Nelson's not going to sneak into the first round or anything like that, but if he gets selected in the second round, it's largely in part because that team knows exactly what they're getting and they're very comfortable about it.
1: Mitigating risk in your, especially in your first two rounds of your draft. That's it's really critical Want to ask about um Aaron Minatean uh on defense because he was another player that both Brad and I touched on coming into the tournament. And it was really when you projected him out is what it what is he? What's he gonna be if he does make the NHL? Thoughts on you know, this entirety of his not only his year, but what you saw throughout this tournament because he I'm he he's gonna force me to go back and watch more film in that yeah. respect because of what he did.
6: Yeah, I, I, I think I'm probably in the same category. Uh, he really impressed me, uh, call it late fall, uh, in at the program. So I would say uh, coming out of the uh, Five Nations in Plymouth and then after that, he really impressed me. And I thought there was going to be um, more offense to his game because he, he did have a little bit of risk-reward. He was jumping and trying to make more plays in the offensive zone. Um, and then his game really fell off detail wise for quite a long stretch for me to be honest with you. His pace was there, his compete was there. His detail wasn't. and um, and I had some concerns. So fast forward to this tournament and let's talk about the gold medal game again and you know compare him to Nelson. Wow, great effort from this kid. I mean, he was arguably their best defenseman in, in that uh, gold medal game. Hudson was electric for me. he was the whole tournament, but um, you know, two-way, uh uh occasional transitional defenseman um but i'm leaning more two-way um still have some concerns at times with him identifying his first best option on an outlet um but having said that he did things like chip it off the window and out if he had to but here's the best part tracked back kept up like he's got no problem keeping up speed wise but got in the lanes some huge shot blocks he made a couple of blocks in the last two minutes of the game and the first actually last shift of regular, uh, of the of last swings on the power play, I think like three seconds left in the game, big shot block. And then the first shift in overtime, another big shot block. Of course, the team goes up the ice and they win it. Um, small details guys, similar to Danny Nelson. So that's a positive. Well, we're going to take a short break on hockey prospect radio. When we come back. We'll continue
1: to talk about the U18 world junior championships right after these important messages.
3: Every play, every stat, every breakdown. On their own, they're essential, but altogether, they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat, a new advanced data platform that integrates with sports code and every Huddle product you rely on to create an all-in-one data powerhouse huddle instats advanced tagging and next level stat reports help you develop your team and its global film library helps you find the missing piece to get the most out of every second of film visit huddle.com backslash hpr
4: to learn more
5: prospect
0: news and analysis this is hockey prospect radio with shane Malloy and brad allen
1: we're back again talking about the u18 world junior championship let's talk about team usa and the big four forwards that obviously got all the attention coming into the tournament rightly so coming out of the program and will smith and gabe perot ryan leonard and Oliver Moore. Now the the big line with Smith, Leonard, and Perot pretty much ate up everybody in this tournament alive offensively. Uh, and then Moore was on uh, another line uh, by himself with Carey, Terrence, and Ryan Fine. And you know, Terrence plays it with the Erie Otters, so there wasn't a lot of like chemistry in that respect. And I thought, for the most case, I thought Moore really carried that line. He was a line driver, and was really on an island by himself but let's start off in terms of some context and perspective because I know you know in obviously in the media there's a lot of talk about how offensively prolific especially the big three were in Smith and Leonard and Perot but if you sort of just even break it down on a cursory level if you look at how weak pool B was and I mean it was the weakest pool I've ever seen in since I've been covering prospects and this is my 24th year I've never seen a pool this week. So when Smith and Leonard and Perro go against Norway, Latvia and Switzerland, that's where they made their hay and their points. So Smith had 20 points, but 11 of those points happened to come against Norway, Latvia and Switzerland. Leonard had 17 points, but 12 of those were against Norway and Latvia and Switzerland. And Gay Perro had 18 points and 11 of those points happened again go against Norway, Latvia and Switzerland. So I really, what I, when I gauge those players, I gauge them against those four games. They play played against Chechia, Slovak, Finland, and Sweden, and arguably Finland, that was the worst team I've ever seen them bring in terms of talent to a U 18s. So you can almost like, I don't want to push them into where Norway and Latvia and Switzerland are for in that case, but still diminished. So this is where I think context and nuance really matters, Jason. In that respect, and this is where I give Oliver Moore a lot of credit. He only he had five points against the three weak teams of Norway, Latvia, and Switzerland, but had four points against Finland, Czechia, Slovakia, and, and Sweden. So he played pretty steady throughout that tournament with two players he normally doesn't play with, and he had to drive the line and didn't get first unit power play. So when it, it, we talk about how we weight performances. I think, you know, just from that basic analysis, I think it really sort of changes perspective of like, oh, maybe I need to go back and go watch those performances against those tough teams specifically to see what Smith and Leonard and Perot really did. Thoughts on that?
6: Well, I think you summed it up pretty nicely. I mean, the the big three, if you will, that top line, obviously even the, the best teams, um, had a hard time containing them, even when you break down those statistics. Um, you know, they they still play to their identity, um, at a, at a pretty elite level. I will say this that, um, I really felt that in the hardest game of all, which was the gold medal game, that, um, especially, um, Smith and Perot, um, compared to Leonard, they really were, were held, um, you know, to the perimeter, they weren't getting. Um, very much time and space to do the same things that they were thriving. You know, everything was taken away. Sweden was a proficient, like, they, they're a really good defending team, real smart, hard defending team. So it did tell you something, Shane, that, uh, you know, they're going to have to go to another level with their drive uh, against uh, t- uh, defenders like that, where Moore is a consummate play driver. Like, he's always, he'll, He's a bulldog. He's built like a a fire hydrant. So he plays a 200 foot game with pace. um, And even, you know, and he's used on the penalty kill. This kid absolutely empties the tank. So he's noticeable for his pace and his compete and his drive all the time. The other two or the other three guys, there's a little bit of opportunity in their game. Leonard, not as much as the other two. For me, Leonard's more complete up and down the ice than, than Smith and Perot. So, I think you're onto something there. That type of, uh, it's a fascinating statistical breakdown. Those are the things that scouting uh, meetings will discuss here uh, in the next couple of weeks for sure.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of the debate with, I remember recent years, Mitch Marner, 75% of his production at the OHL level was against the bottom, bottom, uh, I believe, quarter teams. And then Marco Rossi was a very similar situation. And so from a scouting perspective, I think, what you have to do is, is you basically have to systematically look and break down their points and then figure out which ones are actually translatable and which ones aren't. Uh, and that's a long and painful scouting process. We're doing it with... Um, uh, it was the first rounder out of Calgary uh, that, that got called up this season that uh, Sutter decided not to remember his name. I can't remember. Pelche. Pelche, um, yeah. Pelche, a lot of his goals were very much net front. And uh, Jacob's not a big kid. And so from a scouting perspective, he was one, ki- one kid. I was like, huh, I wonder how many of these can actually be translatable. So we have to pick those apart. With, with Smith and Perot, I feel like you know you, the big difference for me, Jason, is that when you look at Leonard – he, he plays a very hardworking, honest game. It's much more streamlined in the right way, where with Perot and Smith, incredibly dynamic, very creative. But when their creativity is faltering or when they're not being efficient enough, I feel like they don't understand when it's time to just play the right way, if that makes sense. And you saw that in that gold medal game. They, they seem to, in fact, get drowned out and get a bit lost when they're, when they're, you know, 180-degree, no-look, spinning backhand passes through Through uh, three skates weren't working for them. Uh, they, they, uh, let's put it this way. In my write-up of the Black boat with Will Smith, there's, I just wish there was a little more hard skill where he would sometimes just drive. You don't always have to calibrate a play by off-looking an option and using exaggerated postural fakes and using your hands and, and trying to cut through a triangle of the defender. Sometimes you can just drive. And that, for me, was missing throughout this year. And it was emphasized at the end of the season here against a team like Sweden.
6: Well, I, I'm going to say this, guys, because uh, like I, I was obviously in the rink for the game. And one of the things as a scout that, that we do is you, may, you monitor body language and context of the player uh, after the shift or, you know, through off the puck. And you're looking at, you know, how they're competing and how they're reacting to uh, – you know, uh, how they're having to persevere. And let me just say that those two guys were very frustrated in that they're, game against They me. were like, they're pouting. They were a little pouty, Yeah. They, you know, they were sulking a little bit. There's no question. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, they didn't want to be up on the big board after one of those shifts because, uh, you know, it showed it off. But, uh, hey, listen, the body works unbelievable. Uh, they're, they're fantastic talents. And uh, I'll, I'll end it with this. Uh, I'm, I'm based out of London and I, I was able to watch a kid by the name of Patrick Kane in his draft year. And there was a lot of times that Patrick Kane didn't come below the red line here in in London defensively. And uh, he turned out to be a pretty good NHL player. (laughs) Yeah. In the
1: end, it doesn't sometimes matter. And this is what happens not only on this program, but, you know, in the scouting community, we get to a point where we start to really nitpick and, you know, we're nitpicking that 20%, which is in the end of the day, when they get to the NHL, they're going to have line mates that complement them and erase that 20% for the most part, you know, in, in probably 90% of the games, that'll be alleviated by their line mates. And at the end of the day, when we're sitting around in like in a round table discussion like this, our nitpicking, I don't want to say it becomes irrelevant, but the amount of weight that we put on it in our nitpicking doesn't really matter and which is why I wanted to bring that up too, because I wanted to open it with this and then close it with, you know, that commentary, because all three of us have caught ourselves in that respect of nitpicking a guy. And we just go, okay, at the end of the day, is it really going to matter? Yeah. Probably not. Right. Brad, like in, in that respect, I think, you know, we both caught each other.
2: 100. Um, I'll tell you one instance where it does matter a little bit. If you think, if you think Perot, Smith and Leonard are in a similar tier range, and you're trying to contrast them and you have them neck and neck, that's when a little bit of a little bit of that matters more. A little yeah. bit of that matters more.
6: That's that is one hundred percent accurate for sure. There's no there's no doubt about that right there. And and for that reason, I can tell you that uh you know when my list comes out here in a few days at Leonard has has uh, climbed the the ladder where um you know the other two guys have stayed um constant. But I would say with Smith constant with a little bit of a question mark beside it because of my nitpicking. So I haven't gotten over the fact that what I saw. I need to I need to sleep on it for another day so I don't drown the poor kid. Uh, but the, the easy one is moving Leonard up.
1: Yeah, I know and this is um, these are the really important exercises to have. Um, particularly when you, I've come out of many tournaments out of five nations or you know four nations or U18s out of Europe come home and like it's fresh in your mind. And I'm taking I'm like replaying things and like going over my notes on the airplane back and back in the airport. And I get home. And then what I do is I shelf it. And I just I got to leave it and I do my best to leave it for seven days because of that specifically. Otherwise, I can like you don't want to get caught in the cycle of biases or, you know, especially what you've just recently seen and just sort of shelf it for a while and go work on some other stuff, other players, and then come back to it again. Because then you come in with a fresh perspective again, then you look at the to totality of that entire um, um, you know, season as well. But we're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. Stay tuned for Hour 2 right after this.
3: Every play, every stat, every breakdown. On their own, they're essential. But all together, they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat
0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on SiriusXM, NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back on hour two of Hockey Prospect Radio, powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. This is our U18 2023 World Junior Championship review with Brad Allen, myself, and Jason Bukala. Let's talk about the goalies. This is where I'm going to leave it to you, gentlemen. I'm going to say a name and let you roll. I wasn't a goalie. I don't scout goalies. I was a defenseman. I just wanted you to stop the puck, right? And yell at me when I'm screening you. Um, so the, the technical aspects is not what I'm strong at, but I can certainly recognize when mental and emotional attributes are starting to either rise or fail in those those particular players. But right off the hop, I certainly want to, I want you guys to talk about Varabel and his performance, because uh, I think Michael Horable for me, was one of the top goaltenders in this tournament because he there was no off nights for him. He had to actually constantly battle. It was like if he didn't bring his A game, his team's lost. They're going to lose. They're going to lose. And, he, you know, he comes from a team that wasn't very good in the USHL either. So, you know, he faced a lot of rubber. Thoughts, Jason, on him initially throughout this tournament?
6: So, uh, Riser for me um, overall, his statistics uh, don't jump off the page like some of the other, like the Augustines, for example, and the, uh, um, the Erleden in uh, in Sweden, but, I mean, those are the two gold medal finalist teams, too, aren't they? And uh, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, Czechia, uh, you know, they are under duress uh, um, more often than not in the tournament. And there were some lopsided scores, but not because of him, I'll tell you. So if we break down his game, he's a giant in the net. He's an absolute monster. Um, plays with good uh, crease composure. He's uh, rarely, well, he's never outside the paint. Like, he doesn't have to be, right? So he can play deep in the net. At his size um his lateral push isn't as quick as augustine's but again because of his stature it doesn't have to be as as fast because pucks hit him more than they're going to hit other people i really liked his focus i thought that uh he kept the uh, pucks close to his body so he ate more than than he bounded uh back out in the slot or secondary scoring areas i mean i i just thought he was he was really good there was really I didn't leave with any concerns about his game. As a matter of fact, I left and I was thinking about on the plane yesterday that if, if he's in, in the U S net or the Swedish net, or even team Canada's net for that matter, um, you know, how much better even does his game look at that point when you're not having to stop 20 grade A's, you're only having to stop maybe 10 it makes a huge difference. Um, he's going to be, uh, I know he's ranked, I believe second in North, is he first or second in North America on central? It doesn't matter. Um, I think Augustine's gone by him, but he's uh, he for me is the second best. Uh, oh, Bjarnason's one. He's uh, he's uh, the second best option out of North American goalies coming out of this tournament for me.
2: Yeah, Rob, well, I, yeah, I, I agree with you, Jason. Like he he raises draft stock to me, and it's. It, I remember Shane. We talked about this before. Out of any player here, where I really felt they needed to to show a good performance, it was. It was rabble because he was starting to dip a bit in Omaha's system. I think a lot of that has to do with fatigue. When you have a 6'6 kid who's 7, 18 years of age with that frame and in this position and net, you're really dealing with conditioning issues down the stretch. You really are. And you know, I know sometimes it sounds like an excuse, but like look no further to the evidence here at this tournament. When he was against the program there uh, after the second period, it, There was already, I believe, 40 plus shots that he was already, uh, he did not stop, but had come his way. And you really started to see the fatigue set in. And that's when mistakes and mental errors are going to start to creep up. And um, what happened was he started just remaining in his reverse VH way too long, his his post integration. He was just, he was just, he he would not get up at the right times. And that was offsetting his positioning. So um, when you look at that aspect of it, that's totally correct. Right. Conditioning is one of the easiest things to correct. So no problem there. The other that's less correctable, but very important for him to mature through is uh, when you look back in the preliminary round against Canada, uh, he was locked and loaded. He looked excellent in in warm ups. And then he gets in the game against Canada. He was very good. And then Colby Barlow had a beautiful shot down the down the, the wing on him. That was an excellent shot. And it's one of those situations where I wish he was able to uh, forget about the shot a little quicker, forget about that goal a little quicker. Cause the very next high danger chance was against Matthew Wood. And what happened? It's two, nothing. Now the momentum's really shifted. He started to collapse. Technically he started to fold a bit. Um, from a goaltending perspective, those are the key critical plays where I really wanted him to make that save against Wood instead of, instead of collapse. If the first goal was on him, then you expect at this age for him to collapse quicker. It wasn't on him. Barlow just had a beautiful uh, shot, and you need to be able to goal. You need to know which ones you're supposed to get and which ones you're not, right? And that was one you would really want him to just correct. So from that perspective, a little work to be done, but he has everything. Uh, it reminds me a lot – I told Jason this at the tournament. It reminds me a lot of Jakob Markstrom, but I agree with Jason's point when Mar- Jason said to me, hey, I think Markstrom is a little more athletic at the same age. I, I agree. So I would say maybe a fusion between Eric Pertillo. And Jakob Markstrom. But one thing, and Jason mentioned it, but it's a huge thing, is it's very rare for a player this size. You think this, this kid and Damian Clara are the two biggest goalies available in this class. Clara loses his net way more often. And that is the usual consistent theme with the 17, 18 year old kid who's 6'6. Hrabble stays in his net at a very high rate relative to his age that's that's a good level of technical ability and maturity that you don't usually see. So I thought Rob should get full marks. He did very well here.
1: I'd like to get your thoughts, Jason, on Trey Augustine and the benefit and the challenge of playing in front of a, basically an all-star team in that respect. And when the all-star team plays great, you don't face a lot of shots. You don't face a lot of quality shots because they always have the puck. But then when things break down, it seems like it's a three ring circus. So how, how'd you think Trey Augustine handled that situation?
6: Well, it's interesting. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to answer it two different ways for you. And I'm going to uh, piggyback on what Brad just said. So when Augustine was at the world juniors with team USA and he won the net there and he started to um, get deeper into the tournament, the mental fatigue for me took over for Augustine at that tournament. So that's an example of what Brad's talking about. He kind of ran out of gas. And then, of course, the uh, bronze medal game turned into pond hockey and, you know, the rest is history. But fast forward to this event here, and he's backstopping, you know, a very elite Team USA team. They relied on him to make huge saves at the most opportune times of the game against Sweden in the gold medal game, or they don't win the goal. It's just as simple as that, fellas. So um, things that I've, I've pointed out uh, leading into the gold medal game, his focus was spot on. His uh, his positional play was excellent. Uh, rebound control, for the most part, was uh, was reliable. I would call it a few, uh, mostly on his glove side. I find that he gives a few more second chances on his glove side that uh, can be problematic. Um, but again, crease composure was good. Played between the posts, but his lateral push is what stands out the most for me. Out of the top three goaltenders rated in North America, he's the quickest with his read, react, and push from side to side. He makes more saves. And I'm talking saves still in the paint, not saves that you're outside the paint. And when a goalie gets outside the circle or outside the paint, he has a lot more, uh, it's a longer way to track back to his post. So if he's on the right side, he's outside the paint, he's got a longer way to go to his left post. He plays in the paint, reads, reacts, going laterally, and he made an enormous stop, I think with like, uh, I don't know, 30 sec- 20 seconds left in in regulation time against the Swedes. To, to basically give them a chance in overtime. I like them a lot. He's coming out of this tournament as the number one rated North American prospect for me.
2: Uh, yeah, I agree with Jason about, th- this is a huge tournament for me with Augustine because last year at the U18s, I felt like he melted a bit, technically he melted. And then at the U20s, uh, this past season. I agree. It was it was there was definitely fatigue setting in, but he also technically folded. Um this this gold medal game for me was everything. I really wanted to see him actually perform here, keep everything technically sound, maintain consistency. He not only did that, without him they don't Simple as that, and then we don't say that very often this year on the program. Usually, it's the the kids and in, in, uh, the forward lines, they're the, the top six that does all the work. Augustine really had to show up here, or they don't get it done. And he did. He was mentally dialed in. He he kept them in the game when they were down two nothing, and then to what Jason just said, he had that huge save, not an easy save in any way. And that that's how it is. When you're you know, we're, I'm sure all of us here listening. We're all watching playoff hockey. You know, you, you talk about. Uh, Um, uh, watching Florida versus Boston. You knew Jeremy Swain was going to have to make that one huge extra save in that last minute or two. That's just how it goes. And that's what exactly Augustine had to deal with. And Augustine uh, uh, came through. He's uh, technically extremely advanced in some ways for his age, Uh, explosive laterally. There's a lot to like. Um, I would say – Ron is wise, like the, the biggest aspect that needs to be fixed for me is uh, his timing when it comes to looking around certain screens and his set positioning around screens. Um, that was something that, that was highlighted for me at this event when he was letting goals. But uh, Trey, Trey's a very interesting goalie prospect in the sense that you when you compare him to Levi, Wolf, um, Kolosov, Alexa Kolosov, where does he fit within that crop? that's the, that's the debate and, and uh, a very interesting one to, uh, to break down.
1: Yeah, I find, you know, it's really interesting in terms of where goalies get ranked. I mean, just in terms of how once you integrate them into the collective group on your list and because they always say, you know, it's always the narrative is that the goaltenders take longer and they do, but 80% of the players who get drafted take just almost as long as the goaltenders in some respects So that five years and they start to roll in. You know, Markstrom that we talked about was really about seven, uh, which is fine. But it's just interesting, that dynamic of then you start to weigh that in terms of their overall value. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, and we'll be back right after this.
3: Every play, every stat, every breakdown, on their own, they're essential. But altogether, they're undeniable.
0: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back, empowered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. We're going to continue to talk about the goaltenders at the 2023 U18 World Championships with Jason Buchla and Brad Allen. So let's start off and talk about Carson Bjornsson for Canada and about his game, like what you guys saw prior to coming into this tournament and then what you saw in the situation in this tournament. And I give Bjornsson some leeway in terms of, because I don't think Canada's defense was all that super talented overall. And there was a lot of opportunity for opposition forwards to get some grade A scoring chances against him.
6: I agree with uh, some of that for sure. It, it, you know, he um opponents had like he had to face more at times than some of the others, but you know, Horrible definitely faced even more than him. 100%. So if, if we want to just compare those two to start, um, you know, one outplayed the other by a wide margin. My thing with Carson is that uh, we had an opportunity. Well, I sat in on it, but Sam Cosentino, my colleague at Sportsnet, um, interviewed him at the uh, top prospects game. This kid's a fantastic human being, a great character, and I really believe that he's going to put in the work to try and get better. I get all that. There was some times there this year, you know, in Brandon, where he could steal a game on one night, but uh, you know, I'll call it Friday night. But then on Sunday, you know, a couple of leaky ones might go in and. So here's the positives and negatives for me. The positive is he's a big goaltender who's uh, got great character, and I think he's competitive enough to uh, understand that you know you got to go to another level at the most uh, at the key times of the game. I, I think he understands that and he gets that. Um, his his uh, posture and his tracking going from side to side. Two things: he does lose his post more often than not, uh, or more often not. that's not fair. More often than I'd like going from his left to his right, meaning that his right uh, skate and pad gets outside the post when he's pushing off, which opens up ice and uh, and net on his left side. Um, again, his lateral quickness in terms of balance uh, and efficiency, he's got a little bit of a forward lean. If you watch tape on this kid, you're going to see him sometimes where he's making saves but then he's ending up on his belly for the second save, or he's leaning forward trying to sprawl out just to use his length a la Dominic Hasek back in the day type of a thing. You know what I mean? So um, so technically, I, I need him to clean things up a bit. He's big. Don't make yourself small in the net, and I need him to be consistently able to come up with big saves for extended periods of time so there's some talking to be done there.
2: Yeah, to, to Jason's point, I think – you know, we've, we've been talking about a lot of prospects that have, have really increased their draft stock in a way. You know, you're talking about Dvorsky and Stenberg and Rabble. These players have done very well at this event. They've not hurt themselves. Bjornsen to me, looked uncomfortable from the get-go here. I, I don't really know why, but he he looked you, – you look at body language. You know, one, one game I ran over to the side there just to be able to, like, be over the top of him just to read his body language and see what's going on. He just – there seemed to be a lack of being able to dial in the only game I really thought that he looked dialed in and ready to go was against Switzerland. And, and when he had to really be good and perform well in that first period before Canada got going, that was, that was the Bjornason when we talk about the WHL performances where he stood on his head, he's looked exceptional despite being, you know, having 45 plus shots put against him. Those performances, he absolutely looks like a very interesting projectable NHL goalie. But as Jason mentioned, there was a tremendous amount of inconsistency. And that consistency was faltering and occurring more often as the season progressed. That's not so dissimilar to Ravel. And it also happens again with bigger goalies. Jorneson isn't as big as Ravel, but he isn't small either. Jorneson's a pretty big kid. So it's one of those situations you really wish you saw a more focused and dialed-in goalie who was able to perform at a higher level. Even, Even in the game against Sweden, before he got injured, that second goal was unacceptable. He can't. He can't have a, a play where he loses track of the puck and then there's a relaxed stance coming out of the post. He's got to be in a set stance. He's got to be able to transition from a set stance to, into a, into a butterfly and try to take a, uh, the lower part of the net away and, and integrate into his far post. Right. There's just 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 tracking issues at this tournament that were lax. Uh, to Jason's point, he talked about moving laterally and how sometimes he loses. Uh, the puck. One of the reasons for that is, as Jason mentioned, he leans forward too often. Guess what? Your body has to do when you lean forward. It has to compensate, try to lift your head up. If you're lifting your head out of the lateral adjustment, you are not going to track the puck successfully because you have to keep your head uh, positioned uh, the whole way without moving. Right? It has to be has to be on a setter point, and then you move. That's something Bjornsson has been struggling with, and that's not just the u18s that's the season so it's it there are tracking issues but for me the mental focus the mental inconsistency is the definitely the big issue here and i thought he hurt his draft stock the most when in comparing him to the other top bullies with this event like robo and augustine it's clear the Bjornsson is the one that left us with more questions than answers um it's you know it's it's one of those situations where The reason the goaltending is so difficult to scout, there's millions of reasons it's so difficult to scout. One of the main ones is when we're looking at uh, Otto Stenberg, you're looking at a player who's going to look very similar physically to to when he's 22. He's going to skate similarly. He's going to just fill out his frame a bit more, but you're going to see the same player. When you look at Bjorneson, we can modify and overhaul quite a few aspects of the set stance. That's just the position. If you looked at, I, I always bring him up. But I'll bring him up here. Perfect example. Elvis Merzlikens, If you looked at him at 18, at Bjornson's age, you look at Merzlikens now at 24, 25, uh, uh, and when we came over Columbus and, and uh, was working Manny Legacy, they remodified his entire set stance. They changed his whole puck positioning. He looked like a completely different goalie. Bjornson's going to have to undergo the same modifications. He has to get bigger in the net. He's a six-foot goalie who shrinks. You can't have that happen. He's going to have to look every uh, bit 6-4 when he's in the net. So tons of work to be done with Bjorneson, but there's still a lot of considerable upside. So it's just from a scouting perspective, you're taking in more variables. Usually when you have to take in more variables, you have to put them a little further down the list. That's usually what that means.
1: Let's talk about a smaller goaltender that was completely dialed in, Noah Earlidan, and I wish he was 6 too. but Jason, you mentioned it about making those consecutive Grade A saves in a really short period of time to bail out your team and allow them to get reset. That's what I thought Erland did for Sweden in this entire tournament. And it's unfortunate he is 5'11. He might be 5'11, but I may have to look way past that because we talk about mentally dialed in. I thought that kid was mentally dialed in.
6: Yeah, it's too bad the tournament ended the way it did. I think he wants to have the last shot back, and he's going to probably beat himself up a little bit before that, the the game winner there from Leonard. But you know what? Uh, UC Saros comes to mind, doesn't he? Yep. Like, when, when you look at the kid, I mean, Nashville got Saros in the fourth round. I I I believe that this kid would bring good value somewhere along the same, um, around that same slot area, uh, somewhere in that round. Um you know, and somebody might take him earlier. I don't know. He might even fall later. He's an anomaly to a degree because you have to be comfortable with the size. But, uh, hey, structure in the net, guys. Like, great pads. He's a goalie. Some goalies, this is going to sound unusual, but some goalies, when they're kicking pucks out, it's like their legs are going to the puck. So they're, like, attacking the puck with their legs. Other goalies are like a back catcher. When the ball's coming to them, they absorb the puck and direct it. This kid lets the play come to him, and he kicks pucks out and does things, you know, just mechanically very, very well. I love this focus. He didn't. Uh, he's got a great glove hand. No unnecessary movement. He can't afford to have any. Um, the one area is going to be the size. And if you look at like the tip goal that Nelson scored, even so, the puck's looking like it's tracking uh, right post. The the tip goes. Against the grain towards the left post, but really it ends up in the middle of the net. That tells me that the body, even if you're trying, like if you're six four and you move a little bit to your right because that's where the bucks going, it comes back against the grain. Chances are it still might hit you. You might take a bite out of that buck. When you're his size, you're not going to get that that chance, right? So um, there's lots to like, though. I, I don't want to discount him. He was he was great. Uh, uh, Argument can be made that he was the best goalie in the tournament, to be honest with you.
2: Do you guys remember at the Olympics when Christos Zvezkis was standing on his head against uh, Team Canada? And then they had the, uh, the the whistle because he had hydration issues, and he had took a two-minute breather. He came back, and he let in a goal within two minutes after that. He was like, lights out, was, looked like a stonewall. There was a reset point, and it was the wrong reset point. I feel like that's what happened with Ehrlich in the gold medal game when he made that huge glove save. He made the massive glove save. And then all his teammates came up and started tapping his pads. There was a big break within the whistle. I felt like he he lost his focus after that point. I felt like he was a different goalie than that. He was fantastic the whole tournament, fantastic in that game. And he made that glove save, and he just didn't seem the same after that. And I, I feel like that that was the direct result of what Jason referred to with uh, the goal he really wished he had back, where Leonard, Leonard snaked it through a, his armpit there at the end. Um, but, yeah, very – Very interesting in the sense that, you know, I I hadn't seen him in the regular season. Um, There's just so many goalies to get this year. Uh, He was not on the agenda, but yeah, he really put himself on the map as a a player I'm going to have to go back and look at more. Um, You know, the the big thing with a goalie like that is if they're not perceived to be at Dustin Wolf or Devin Levi's level, then it's very unlikely they really get drafted. Uh, look where w- Levi and Wolf went, right? Like seventh rounders. Wolf is arguably the best goalie prospect in the game right now, coming off one of the best, most historic seasons in the history of the AHL. And uh, we all know what Devin Levi has managed to accomplish coming out of college and, and look how he did uh, in his first handful of games there with Buffalo. So it you, to what Jason said, you have got to be able to just be unbelievably structured at a size and that is that is something this kid has and that that's the first step the next step is is he hyper reflexive enough like a UC saros and does he explosively move laterally enough like a trey augustine and does he have the other intangibles you're looking for in terms of mental consistency he certainly looked like he did at this event but it's just one turn so there's a, a lot to unpack there but he's um, put himself in the map where i'm gonna have to certainly uh, it's kind of in the same way anton Wahlberg, i gotta go back and watch Walberg more well i gotta go back and watch a little more now as a result of this tournament
6: one thing I'll say Shane before you before you go is that uh, strategically when you're drafting a kid like this the development uh, timeline because he is playing in Europe that factors in your decision making too so when you talk about a wolf you know he's coming out in two years right you talk about a Levi he's unlikely to go to college for the full um, four years when well, you're just not going to allow that to happen here you got a guy that's going to play in the Swedish elite league for call it at least another three years the timeline is a lot different for this kid. So you can put the work in with your development people to uh, to kind of manage that a little bit differently. A
1: hundred percent. We're going to take a quick break on Hockey Prospect Radio. Uh, thank you to Jason for coming on and giving us some great insight from the U18s. And we'll take a short break.
3: Every play, every stat, every breakdown. On their own, they're essential. But all together, they're undeniable
0: Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. This is Hockey Prospect Radio,
1: powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student-athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. Happy to bring on Patrick Williams, AHL correspondent for NHL.com and AHL.com in our Around the AHL segments and Um, Now that the U18s is uh, now concluded, we can jump back on to our regular schedule AHL talk. Let's chat about San Jose Barracuda. Lots of changes up top at the NHL level, which means there's going to be lots of changes at the American League level. Now, thankfully for San Jose, uh, Joe Will is still there. So there is somebody that has been there for a long time to maintain that stability. But then you're bringing in new coaching staffs like, you know, now John McCarthy has been there before and now he's like now he's the head coach, but there's new people that are working within the American Hockey League. And, you know, unfortunately for San Jose, they didn't, you know, didn't do well uh, this season. So that's another thing as well. They didn't make they didn't, you know, didn't make the playoffs. So there is an opportunity for San Jose to reevaluate what has been going on. And that's something, obviously, Mike Greer had discussed further. And that's what they're going to do at the NHL level. And they're going to do that at the HL level too. Thoughts on that transition? Because that's a – I don't think people have really recognized the loss of Ray Sommer from a stability standpoint. I don't think people have recognized what happened in terms of the loss of stability and culture that he brought to the rink every day. And it was just accountability culture. This is the way we do things. The San Jose sharks. Like that is a crater sized hole.
7: Brought it every day for 24 years, oh. going back to 1998, four different uh, cities where the sharks had their affiliates, 150 players that went up to San Jose through the years. Uh It's strange to think of that whole operation without Roy being there, right? Like you know, so this was a a transition. It's probably it's probably a down, you know, downplaying it because you had new general manager come in, like you said, Mike Greer. New NHL coaching staff coming in, uh, new NHL head coach. um, You know, just a a total shift. New
1: development staff, like you know, you know, Todd Marchant comes in from over from Anaheim, so there's a shift there as well. So all those philosophies. And what you value and how you go about your business, all your methods of operation, everything changed. And yeah, that even, is even. that's that's there's some turmoil that happens in that, even though everything is well intended and it could have a very good strategy and tactics are strong, and you have the ability to pivot and you got some smart people, it's still that amount of change causes some chaos in adjustment for players and for the entire staff and organization. Sure. Everybody's
7: learning their jobs on the fly. They're learning their own jobs and they're learning how all those uh, different roles mesh together. Right. Like so John McCarthy, first year head coach, he had been development side. Obviously, he was a longtime captain for the Sharps at the AHL level. That's right. Only 35 years old, still learning his his, his coaching game and kind of um not an easy role to walk into either, right? Like this isn't a situation where you're just taking over kind of a, you know, an operation.
1: That's like an NHL coach taking over after Scotty Bowman left Montreal. Yeah. That's what, I mean, that's the equivalent of what Roy Sommer is to the American hockey league in terms of that coaching fraternity. He is the Scotty Bowman of the American league. And you're
7: doing it with a lot at stake, right? So like you had had William Eklund, seventh overall right there. You had Thomas Boudreau. Uh, second rounder who they're really high on and yeah you know you're as a first year head coach trying to integrate them into the ahl navigate them through all the the changes that come with that uh while also trying to learn your role right and you also have what 20 25 other guys to worry about too so they had their ups and downs um uh, i'll give them credit like they played hard till the end like they went deeper into the season than maybe I thought they would. Um and in terms of like, you know, they, they down the stretch they lost Eklund. Like first he was called up, then he was injured. Um uh, Boudreau or, uh, Bordeaux, I should say. I don't I always say uh Boudreaux, but Bordolo, you know, went up to the Sharks. So um yeah, just a lot of a lot of change, right? And it's gonna going to take some time, right? Like rebuilds are not an overnight proposition, but you do have a good foundation there, right? With an Eklund and a yeah. Bordolo, Um that uh, you know the Sharps, if if they get it right, you 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 have you have the makings of something there. So I uh, I like that they they played hard every night. Like that was a team that, uh, um, that, you know you didn't see them. They didn't see them turning too many clunkers, right? Like you know they generally competed right. every night. So I think you know it, it's early, but the early, the the early signs I think are promising.
1: Let's talk about the Springfield Thunderbirds and a new affiliate for the St. Louis Blues. So changes there as well, a new players, new management, you know, uh, thankfully, you know, Drew Bannister, you know, has had, this is a second year. So, you know, he's getting his feet under him, new coaching staff. So, I mean, and that's a bit of a change, obviously for the Springfield market thoughts on what you saw this year from Springfield and, those changes, and then, you know, the new affiliation with St. Louis. I had interesting conversation with Tim Taylor about that, and he was very happy with the progress that was being made overall.
7: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, last year they came in, and, uh, you know, they have to, you know, coming off the the pandemic season, they have to kind of, again, learn each other, learn learn how both sides operate on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I remember talking to Bannister last year, and one of the things he wanted to do was really kind of get, like, a St. Louis Blues feeling around it, right? Like, right. To, you know, they kind of redid the dressing room, really, like, really tried to play up that connection to the Blues. and You know, it ended up going really well. They went all the way to the Quarter to the Cup final. They lost to Chicago, but, I mean, uh, nobody would stop in Chicago. Um, so a lot of players got some good young, uh, or some really good – Development time in the postseason uh, this year, you know, they were they were pretty solid, and then you know I thought they were gonna, going to make some noise again in the playoffs. And all their full contingent back for the most part uh, with right. St. Louis missing Joel Hofer, one of the top goalies in the league, you know, was in net, and then the you know it's the best of three playing round, and it's just it went off uh, it went off track uh, very quickly for them. They were outscored uh, thirteen to two in the.
1: Right. two losses and that was that. I and I was surprised real, that Hartford like yeah. took a like it's not a disrespect for Hartford. I was just yeah. surprised that Springfield I thought that was going to go three games for sure. Yeah, for sure.
7: And so, you know, that that's definitely an opportunity lost uh for the Blues to get those players some real meaningful playoff time this year. Um now you go home and that's not a, you know. Well, the season ended good. early for both. Yeah, right. right. So, like, now it's now what? Now you have five months of off season, you know, like, uh, NHL teams don't like that, right? Like, you want your players uh, out there playing, like, competing, right? Like, because you're seeing, you know, you're seeing what it's doing for the Hartford Wolfpack, for example, right? Like, those right. young majors prospects getting out some real, um, real bonafide fide playoff time, and um, it makes a difference. We've seen it. How many times have we talked about this, right? Like, you know, the, the difference a player from October to April, and then maybe if he can play into May and June, even that jump from April to May and June can be significant. So, um, yeah, I would have liked to have seen them gone longer for their sake. Just uh, I think it would have really, like, really made a difference. I think especially, like, you 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 have a home for, you know, just some good young D there as well. So, uh, but that's the way it goes.
1: Well, I mean that's, uh, and I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up Hofer because I think it's really important. That, you know, yes, it's always important at the NHL level to have a great goalie, but at the American League level, why I think it's even sometimes more important to have a great goalie in the American League is to insulate young prospect defensemen, right, is just to give them somebody stable back there that they can rely upon, who's not going to be screaming at them, who knows that a young defensemen are going to make critical errors, they're going to that- make mistakes.
7: And if every time you make a mistake it ends up in the back of your net, that's a whole lot different than if you make a mistake and your goalie bails you out, right? Like, you yeah. know, like just confidence wise. So yeah, I agree that that's huge.
1: And that's and that's where the goalies and the D can get together and they have conversations. Okay, this is what happened next, this time, right? Okay, this work. You know, they get into practice and they start talking about that, which is one of the reasons why I like that the American League dropped the number of games they play. Like honestly, at the end of the day, I like sixty-eight. If they could just play 68 games across the league, I know there's obviously differences in the number of teams and that offsets some things, but it really just gives them the practice time that's necessary at that level. Like That extra 14 games difference is huge. That could be like two games a month. That two games a month doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a a lot of extra practice dates in there from that standpoint. So I think that's really critical. Uh, We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back to talk about the American League right after these messages.
3: Every play, every stat, every breakdown. On their own, they're essential. But all together, they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat
0: Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're
1: back and powered by Junior Prospect Hockey League, Western Canada's newest developmental stream for student athletes looking to take their game and studies to the next level. We're continuing to talk about the American Hockey League with Patrick Williams as we go down our list alphabetically. Even though we're in the playoffs, let's talk about the Syracuse Crunch. And... We have talked about other franchises in the past that have had like this long-term stability, like, you know, the Hershey's and the Providence's of the world who have like these long affiliations. Syracuse is another team that I put in that mix, even though they haven't had the same history, even though it's been a longer time frame. just that how they conduct their business from a player development standpoint, coaching standpoint, stability of staff, stability of culture, stability of um, operations management. It couldn't find a better blueprint. If you want to look at a blueprint of an American League franchise and how it it properly, go take a look at the Syracuse Crunch.
7: Oh, yeah. And that starts off the ice, uh, even like from the way the Crunch, you know, they're an independently owned team, um, extremely stable and a, a highly, highly competent front office. And that, that makes a huge difference, right? Like you need those people behind the scenes, um, you know, doing what they have to do to give your prospects the best sort of environment. I, I know that is a big reason why the lightning really like working with Syracuse. They, they, they just, they trust them, right? Like
1: yeah. you're
7: essentially, if you're, you know, an affiliation is just another name for we're turning over 20 or 25 of our players into your care and asking well, you to take care
1: of them for us. That's our future. Um, we're trusting and, you with our future. Yeah. Don't, and like, please uh, do to make
7: sure that, um, the people that are that you're handing those players over to know what they're doing right Yeah. Uh, on and off the ice. Right. And, and giving them the best possible environment. So that's, that's one part. And then the second part of it is obviously what the lightning brings to that relationship. And, you know, I think it starts with Ben Grew.
1: Yeah. Um, what is his seventh, seventh season there? Yeah. And, and yeah. you
7: look at like, look, look at like a Darren Radish, right? Like Darren Radish was a real classic example of a player. He had gotten into his mid twenties Um his career could have gone a lot of different ways, right? Like, and he came into Tampa. You know, I spoke with him earlier in the year. You know, like that was a big part of why he came there. Like, he just, you know, he really liked what they had to offer, and that he thought that working with them could be kind of the difference for him. In, in is he going Can to he, be a lifetime HL player, or is he going, going he get to get some guys. games? Yeah, and we saw what he did. Now and he, he showed walked, well. So he showed he went really to Tampa well. Tampa for two months played. Uh, played in the Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, you know, looked right at home there. So, um, he had a fantastic season in Syracuse while he was there and uh, really translated well up to uh, to Tampa. And now he's, you know, he's started, certainly put himself into that conversation uh, yeah. for, for a lot more with the Lightning going into next year. So, I think it's just, yeah, he's a, he's the latest example, right? And we've seen this time and time again, right? Like Danny Gordon, Carter Hady and like, you know, you know, environment like the matters. Team.
1: Like, like I can't emphasize enough. The environment a player is in matters. Like it is one of the biggest weighting factors that I have in terms of success of development of a player is the environment he is in. And when you have like, like we talked about it already, like Benoit Gru's been there for seven years. Uh, Julian Breezeball was the general manager there for seven years. Now Stacey Roos has been there for four, right? Like, you couldn't ask for greater stability because nothing really changes in terms of how things are done and what your expectations are. And, you know, and they're really a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. Like if you are the being the, you're the best player, you're getting called up and it doesn't like above a first round or second round pick. Yeah. If you're going to help us win, you're coming up. Like, Uh, and, and the veterans that matters to the veterans. Oh, sure.
7: And, and I, I think it's even more important now, like obviously because of the, you know, last number of years, Tampa's been a, a cup winner or a cup contender. Um, you know, they've had to make some deals and, and, and you know, turnover draft picks and, and, and move them out. So you're not getting necessarily that replenishment uh, picks coming in. So you have to, you, the ones you do have, the veterans you sign, the free agents you sign, you have to, you have that much more uh, um, necessity to, to yes. make those ones work. Right. And so yeah. they're even able to, to still sort of maintain that standard, even though you're not getting that same churn of um, young picks coming into the 20, year olds. So, um, you know, I think as eventually as Tampa you know, it will be a while before they start to replenish their pitch, but uh, you know, if you can do that, eventually, they'll find, they'll find they'll free find agents. Win, right? they, they always find
1: cool. free agents, CHL free agents, um, um, you know, you college free agents, European free agents, they always find ways to replenish their stock. So they don't even have to have first and second round picks. They always yeah. find a way. I give yeah. them credit for that. They're they're great for that. You know, another team is, is is when we talk about stability in the American League, is Texas. Yes. Um, you know, so you look at their coaching staff, you know, Derek Laxall was there for about seven years, six years. Uh Neil Graham's been there for now four. Um, Scott White has been the general manager there. I think since 2009. Yeah. So I think it's about it's been about 14 years. So, you know, and it's owned by... Very,
7: very, very similar, almost like a Syracuse to the Western Conference. Yeah. You know, um, very similar template, right? Like, you know, um, meritocracy, you know, stability. Like, even look at, like, the assistant coaches in Texas, right? Like, Max Fortunis, Travis uh, Morin, two guys that, you know, were... Longtime veterans in Texas as players, and, and uh, shifted that over to the, uh, um, you know, to the coaching side of the game. Neil Graham, for my money, one of the best young coaching prospects in the game right now. Extremely smart, extremely organized. Uh, I, I'd say Texas maybe plays one of the most structured games in the entire league, which is not easy to do. Right? Yeah. Constant lineup changes, and um, I think the work he did with Thomas Harley, for example. Right, it was fantastic, right? Like you again, another player with a lot of raw talent, but it was completely kind of unharnessed, and you know he had to find Neil Neil Graham had to find a way to kind of like put that all together, right? Like they, yeah. they kind of they deconstructed his whole approach to defensive game, and and then slowly uh, put it back together and gave him more leeway bit by bit, and I see Harley's off to the NHL, and you know like that's a great example, like of you know. Harley could have gone maybe a, a couple of different ways as a first round pick, and we've seen the, those cases before where uh, right. they come in with a lot of talent, and they're just they're not able to be managed well, and it it, it goes off track. Well, like Neil Graham really got on top of that early, and uh, I think you know is, is a big part of why Thomas Harley now is is really putting together his game, and uh, you can look all up and down the lineup there uh, with Texas that you know they're. they're they maximize what they get from their players.
1: Yeah, and and next the next defenseman up for that is Artem Grushnikov. Mm-hmm. Like he's going to be the next guy that's going to like benefit from that because he it's very very rare to find that old school hardcore defensive defenseman who plays absolutely nasty, and I mean yeah. mean Jacob Trouba, mean mean R- Richard Matchuk mean. Right. And that's the next guy up for, you know, for Neil Graham is to mold that guy into you know, like a nasty piece of work at the NHL level, because no one's going to want to play against that guy. And he just brings a different element. And Liam Bichelle's not far away. Mm-hmm. Right you know and that's where that's why i'm i'm always intrigued with America league franchises in in many cases more than the nhl of how the structure works there and then how like how they do go about their business and you look at the stable franchises and everybody will look at the drafting and no one really pays attention to development like it's crazy to me yes we are an nhl network radio yeah. nobody talks about the american league and it's it, it uh, whatever I see on social media, I roll my eyes. I'm like people like have no idea this is the second best hockey league in the world, and they think it's just an afterthought, and that everybody jumps from the you know the World Juniors right into the NHL and okay. the American League. It's almost like the American League doesn't matter, and it's well, like it matters more to think... the success of an NHL franchise than anything else.
7: I have people that literally think it's like slap shot, or, or you know, like you know, a bunch of you know, like like Reggie Dunlop types just running around. Like, no, it's not. It, it's NHL it's, teams invest millions of dollars into their operations these days. You know, look you know how many development coaches there are, and just you know, you look at some of the buildings that these H L teams play in. Beautiful, you know, beautiful. Like this yeah. is not the old kind of. Rough old, and Humble age the you know the 70s 80s may even to the 90s like this is it's a whole different league now like it's um yeah, but yeah that reputation uh persists and uh you know well, it
1: it should be really it's hard, to, it's hard to shake it. It should really should be the NHL too. Like the whole marketing of the league is a whole another matter that we're not going to get into we don't have time for but it's that's part of it is just no one knows. No and like you and I have like have been like Banging our heads about that for probably, you know, for 10 a decade at least. So, but thank thankfully we that Dave Andrews was there because without him, I don't know what this league would have been like. That guy deserves to be in the hockey hall of fame. Uh, thanks once again, Patrick, for coming on the show. Always appreciate it. There's been another episode of Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio, powered by Instat Hockey, often the largest data and video library of Teams. Uh, and leagues worldwide. You can listen to the show on your favorite ne- podcast network, Sirius XM app, YouTube channel, and follow us on Twitter at HP Radio and HockeyProspectRadio.com. Thank you to all our guests, and we will see you at the rink.